about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Skip Morris, and he'll be answering your questions on fly fishing tips for trout, bass, and panfish. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com, and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column. Just fill in your name, email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast will be recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to the website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Skip Morris about fly fishing tips for trout, bass, and panfish. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than just a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling, while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at bajaflyfish.com. That's bajaflyfish.com. Before we introduce Skip, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. If you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Skip's section that says, click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. And thanks to Stackpole Books, we'll also be giving away a copy of Skip's latest book, Fly Fishing Tips, or 365 Fly Fishing Tips for Trout, bass, and panfish. And here's how you can win Skip's book. You must be the first person to answer the question or questions, uh, could be two-part, at the end of the show. And it's going to be something that Skip and I talk about during the show. So just uh, take good notes, pay attention, listen, and type fast when the time comes, and maybe you'll win Skip's book, 365 Fly Fishing Tips for Trout, Bass, and Panfish. And uh, you'll be sending that answer in on that same uh, form on our homepage where you can ask questions. So um, just fill in that form and submit it there when the time comes. Our guest tonight is Skip Morris. There are a few names in the world of fly fishing so widely known as solidly established as Skip Morris. Skip has published 19 fly fishing books, including the genuine bestseller currently in its 22nd printing, Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple. He has also authored many other books, including Fly Tying Made Clear and Simple 2, Advanced Techniques, The Art of Tying the Nymph, The Art of Tying the Dry Fly, The Art of Tying the Bass Fly, 
tying foam flies, concise handbook of fly tying, a custom graphite fly rod, Morrison Chan on fly fishing trout and lakes, uh, the waterproof fly fisher's guide for western river hatches, and Morris on tying flies, trout flies for rivers, and most recently his 365 fly fishing tips for trout, bass, and panfish. If that isn't enough, he's also written over 300 magazine articles on fly fishing in many different publications. Skip's original fly patterns are tied and distributed by the Solitude Fly Company of uh, California, and their current catalog contains about 30 of Skip's patterns, many of in several sizes. Fly Shop in California, one of the major fly fishing mail order houses, carries several of Skip's patterns in its catalog and on its website. Uh, he's an, an instructor on six videos and has worked in radio and television as both a fly fishing host and celebrity guest. Uh, he lives with his wife, Carol, amid the rivers and lakes and saltwater beaches of Washington State's wild and magnificent Olympic Peninsula. Well, Skip, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing. Thank you. Good to be back, Roger. Yeah, and you're up in Washington now. Didn't you? You still live in California for a long time? Um, well, I lived in Portland, Oregon for I can't think how many years, but it was like 15 oh. or something. And uh, But I've li been living up here for a long time, over 20 years. Oh, okay, okay. For some I, I got. I, I just remember the Sierras and stuff, and uh, you spent a lot of time in the Sierras at one time. Well, I fished um, down there, and if you think I should move yeah. down there, I'll consider it. <laughs> if what? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear what you said. <laughs> uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. It's nothing. Um, the, um, well, we have, um, what the plan is, is we've got some questions from our audience tonight, and um, we're going to take a few of those here and there, and then we're going to, I'm going to pick and choose out of your book. I mean, out of 365, we ought to be able to cover a few of these tonight. And um, uh, so we may be bouncing around a, a bit, but I thought maybe we'd start out with trout and then move to, to bass and panfish later later in the night. So does that sound like a plan? That works for me, yeah. And actually, you know, Carol and I counted through these for some reason or another the other day. And... With the bonus tips, there are these short bonus tips. It comes out to, I believe, 399 tips. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that sort of explains why I'm not going to be able to recall them instantly in every case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll pick them out of the book, and I'll tell you uh, pages and numbers, and then uh, then we can talk about it. And, um, and you know, when we talk about it, uh, uh, Skip, feel free to, to tell any stories or sidebars about the topic at hand because uh, – I know you've probably got a ton of those. So let's start out, uh, and this is something that I, I've never seen this question before, but Jack in B.C., uh, Canada, he says, did trout get spooked easily when a depth finder is used? When sonar or sound wave hits a fish, can they feel it when they get scared? You know, what I would say to Jack is that that's an excellent question, and I don't know. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it, yeah, it ha it's not a question that had occurred to me before, but it makes perfect sense because there's that ping, you know. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, there's waves passing through the water. And, um, uh, yeah, I have never thought about that either. So, uh, uh, Jack, kudos to you. You stumped the uh, the master and the mentee here. <laughs> yeah, right off the bat. Should we just conclude <laughs> the interview then? Or? Yeah, yeah, we might as well skip. Uh, go get a go get a, a, a glass of scotch and 
call it a night. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, we'll, we'll, we'll try another one. Um, okay. So um, here's one. Um, I'm picking out 17 uh, on page 22 of your book. Uh, you say fish might be close to your boat. Uh, and you, you apply this. In, in your book, this is cool because underneath each tip, uh, Skip puts little pictures and tells you whether it's trout, largemouth bass, smallmouth, or panfish as to what this applies to. And this applies to all of them. So tell us a, a little bit about uh, fish under the boat. Okay. I'm looking that up. That was tip 17. Yeah. Um, well, you know, um, if you're making your boat rock around, Trout, bass, panfish—they're not going to hang around under there. It's just—it's—it's—that's—that's that's a threat. They—they they perceive that as a threat. But if your boat is very quiet, um, if you think about it, there's shade under there, and fish tend to like shade. There are fish, very a few that don't care for it. Uh, yellow perch, for example, don't have very good eyesight. They need that light. But most fishes, especially if it's bright out, are trying to avoid the bright light, and so they have a tendency to gather under your boat. Uh, I've, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I feel a little guilty about this, but that I've just let a fly go straight down into the boat and sometimes caught trout, but a lot of times caught um, especially panfish, bluegills, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, um, uh, and this doesn't apply to, to the fish we're talking about tonight, but I know uh, for fishing with, uh, with muskie, uh, you can draw muskie to the boat, and they'll go underneath and, and wait under the boat, and then you do like a figure eight next to the boat with your with your lure and out they come and hit it so uh, they're, they're not oh, they nearly use it for an, a, an ambush uh, yeah. blind <laughs> yeah. wow yeah yeah so um, the first time my, my uncle told me about that I thought he was pulling my leg and then we did it and out from under the boat comes a muskie so um, well you know I've seen um, up in up in uh, the Kamloops region well other areas up there but especially Kamloops in British Columbia Canada I have seen loons, and loons are smart birds, and they have figured out that they can hide under your boat, and then when you bring your fish in, they come darting out and grab your fish and head off with it. Oh, really? <laughs> and that's always kind of shocking, because these are big birds. They can have a six-foot wingspan, and they can yeah, shoot yeah. your boat like a black-and-white torpedo and grab your fish that you were about to net. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. Yeah, they had something on, uh, I think it was actually on the CNN news feed, uh, where a, uh, an eagle got tangled up with an octopus the other day. And uh, I guess the eagle tried to grab the octopus, and then the octopus was getting the better of the eagle. And there were some fishermen there that went and helped uh, the eagle out by getting the octopus to release his grip on him. But yeah, that was a new one. <laughs> These guys spend every day, you know, for 50 years on the water. They said they never seen that before. But, I'll bet. I sure never saw yeah. They saw water a bit. I've never seen that. Well, yeah, that sounds like, yeah. that sound like a movie on the Sci-Fi Channel, Octopus versus Eagle or something like that. <laughs> it's it, the, uh, yeah. Those low-budget yeah. ones. Yeah, 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 Octopus meets Eagle. Um, anyway, well, let's uh, let's look first. Um, let's see. Um, uh, Scott Nelson wrote in. This will make you think for a minute. So uh, while you're thinking, I'll find another question. He says, please <laughs> okay. tell us some unique nuggets of information that are not well-known or very common by knowledgeable experienced seasoned fly fishers. He's digging deep. He's digging deep. Yeah. Well, um, I think 
well, this is going to sound like a plug, but it's true, so I'm going to say it. But I think there are a lot of those in this book, honestly. I've just been fishing so many years and have hang, hung around so many really sharp guides and fly fishers and fellow fly, fly fishing writers, and I just always always pepper them with questions and learn a lot. But um, there's one that does stick out in my mind, and it's a tip in here. Uh, I've never heard anybody else mention it. Maybe they've written about it and I haven't read it, but this is real high-end stuff. So imagine that you've got a trout rising quietly in front of you, and you're trying to get your fly out in front of the trout, as usual, without spooking this nervous trout that's up at the surface, just under the surface, rising in a rhythmic pattern. Um, if you drop your fly too far upstream, I mean, that's great because then the, there's no chance the fish will see the fly drop. But if you drop your fly way upstream, it's also very hard to get it right in his feeding lane. So the way to drop it closer, not necessarily close, is to drop that fly right after the fish has gone down with an insect. I mean, just right after. Now, I don't know what's going on in the trout's head or his world at that point. Maybe he's looking down. Maybe he's concentrating on swallowing the insect or something like that. But in any case, this works a lot. For some reason, there's that moment when the trout takes an insect, and then right after he starts to go down with it, when he doesn't notice things like that, and you can drop your fly fairly close to him, and then when he comes up again, it's there, and he doesn't know how it got there. If you were below the surface of the water and hadn't risen yet, and you dropped your fly that close, it would spook him. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, so first of all, it sounds like you have to spot that fish rising and try to get his tempo down, right? Um, his exactly. rise pattern. Yeah, and then and then drop, and then as soon as he takes a, a bite of whatever, he closes his eyes and goes mmm and goes down, and then that's when you cast, right? <laughs> I guess that's what happens. But right after they go down with something, there's that. They're moment. distracted. I don't. Yeah, I've I've pulled yeah. that off a lot of times. It it works. Oh. Yeah, I've never heard that one before. So that that is a, that's a winner for you, Scott. Um, we'll. Uh, skip uh, in with that because <laughs> that is a good one that's a good one i'll have to try that i've never tried that either and uh, yeah, if you're i got one here oh i'm sorry go ahead uh, i was going to say tip number 135 on page 109 of your book you're talking about the tuck cast tell us why that's important uh in today's world especially i think this can relate to uh, uh contact nymphing which a lot of people are doing now as well right you're talking about, what was it, 139? 135. 135? Oh, the tuck, yeah. yeah. Well, um, the tuck really is valuable, and it's, it's an overpowered high cast where the rod really stops. And because the fly has weight, you know, all nymphs in streams, the efficient streams have weight, or there's weight on the leader, one of the two. You can't, otherwise, you can't get the fly down there to the fish in time before everything gets swept past. And so the tuck creates a lot of slack right directly over that fly. And if there's slack, there's no resistance. And so the fly can just get right down there to the fish. It can start sinking and keep sinking. And the leader is kind of piled on top of it, so or the tippet, rather, and leader. And so it can pull them down easily. Um, one of the big challenges of fishing nymphs in streams is that by the time the nymph is down to the level where the fish are, it's dragging downstream. It's coming back up because you've reached the end of your line. So everything we can do to get that nymph down as quickly as possible is to our advantage, and the tuck cast is a, pays off for that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and gets you in contact with the NIMS quickly uh, as well. Talk about, this is 116, animating dry flies. Uh, most of the time we're talking about dead drifting dry flies or not creating movement. At what times uh, would you want to animate uh, dry flies? Um, there are really two times in my experience. Uh, one is when the insect or creature, typically it would be a, an insect of some kind, whether it's one from land, like a grasshopper, or one that uh, hatches from the water, such as a mayfly or a stonefly. Anyway, if the bug, or whatever it is that the fish are feeding on, and that apply, this applies mostly to trout. This book really is mostly about trout in streams, but it is also about a bunch of other things. And I was, I'm getting off the subject, but I was amazed how many of these tips applied to all these fishes. I, that surprised mm -hmm. me. I thought that mm -hmm. each tip would apply to a particular type of fish, but yeah, most of them applied to all of them, or, or at least two out of two out of whatever it is. Um, so. Backtracking to where I was going, <laughs> if the natural that the fish is feeding on is active, you want your fly to be active as well. Um, a lot of insects that hatch or drop to the water are not active or not very active. So then you, you're trying to get a, what we call dead drift, as though the fly is just drifting along unattached to a leader. But there are insects for sure, uh, spruce moths, grasshoppers, adult stoneflies, some caddisflies that drop on the water or hatch from the water, and they're active. They may skitter across the water. They may uh, just flutter around, and then you just try to put your fly without really moving it very much. And, you know, you watch the insects, and you try to imitate that movement, whatever that is, whether that's no movement or some particular kind of movement. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, have you fish much with spiders, like smallmouth? Oh, you mean like the old classic huge hackle, tiny hook spiders? Um, Dry flies? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I think the ones I've seen, the patterns are more leggy patterns, you know, with a, with a bunch of rubber legs that float. Uh, oh, that's a whole different thing. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I have a pattern that I fish all the time for bass and panfish and, and quite often for trout and lakes called the predator, and it's one of my patterns, and it does have rubber legs that swim all over the place, just spring all over. Um, so I guess that would be a yes. Is that a floating so much fly? Or? That kind of, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I said, is that a floating fly? Is it a dry fly? or is it a? Well, it is a floating fly. It's a foam fly. The predator is a foam fly that um, has been around for a long time. And uh, I fish it, actually, for all these different species. I'll fish it on lakes for largemouth, smallmouth, panfish. I'll fish it in streams for smallmouth. I'll fish it in lakes quite often for trout, uh, trolling it. I even started to fish it lately for trout on the surface and caught a bunch. So it's a real versatile fly. I fish it a lot. It's it just this very year it came out tied commercially from uh, the Solitude Company. So it's out there. Is, it, um, is that something you would uh, use movement on, or is that usually dead drifted? No, I, I'm almost always giving that one some action. If I'm fishing it on a full sinking line, um, usually I'm giving it quite a bit of action, making the legs flip and making the fly really swim. Although you can fish it very slowly on a full sinking line, and then it's a lot like 
a fly that lake fishermen have picked up from Europe uh, called the booby fly, which is a long story, the name, but it, the thing is it's a, it's a buoyant fly, and you fish it on a full sinking line in a trout lake, and it rises up, and then you just give the line little pulls, and it sort of flips and uh, can be very deadly. So this, yeah. the predator can be fished that way as well. Yeah, okay, okay. We're going to take a quick break here, and um, uh, when we come back, we'll be talking with Skip Moore about some of the great tips he has in uh, his most recent book, 365 Fly Fishing Tips. So hang with us, and we'll be right back. Looking for that shot at a permit, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island, and they're only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. Book your next adventure now. Visit WhitbrayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whitbray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing, Internet Radio, and we're talking with Skip Morris about fly fishing tips for trout, bass, and panfish. If you'd like to ask Skip a question, go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on, on the show tonight. So, um, Skip, I always ask my guests at this point in the show, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So I know, boy, you do a heck of a lot of writing. But um, are you doing any speaking uh, this show season? Uh, what's up in your world? Yes, uh, I've, got, I've got some local stuff with fly clubs, but I'm also flying out. Uh, we're going to go to back to Memphis. I've got to do a show there. and That's going to be fun because it's kind of a one-man show. I've done a lot of those where <laughs> they're a workout because you're it. But uh, I also enjoy them, and I'm going back there to do that again, and we'll be fishing. Uh, we'll be drifting. I like to say this, when I th- and it's the first thing I think of, but we'll be drifting in canoes down a, a river, amongst cypress trees and hearing snakes dropping just downstream from us the whole day again, which kind of creeps me out, but it's kind of cool, too. And so we'll be doing that. And then, uh, let's see, there's El Paso, and I've got a big fly show in Seattle. And I can't remember what else, but I've got a bunch of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it'll keep me busy. And then when I'm not out of town with Carol doing a show or a club or something, I'll, uh, I'll be writing and fishing. Yeah. Yeah, great, great, great. Um, we just got a question in on the Internet uh, from Phil in, uh, in Kentucky. He says, many years ago I worked on a glacier park, uh, in Glacier Park and managed to fish at a lake very soon after the ice went off. It did not seem to matter that my casting was lousy. Uh, is it typical that early ice-off lake fishing for trout is essentially showing up at a trout all-you-can-eat buffet? So what, do you, what are your thoughts about ice-off fishing? You know, that can be a great time to fish. Um, I know up in the Kamloops region, that's a big deal is when the ice first comes off a lake. Um, I'm trying to remember how that works. I've, I've done some of that, and it, it, I believe it has to do with oxygen particularly, but the fish are pretty much kind of trapped at a certain, <laughs> certain strata of the lake and because that's where the oxygen is. If I remember correctly, I hope I'm not just 
mouthful of hot air about this because it's not something I've done a lot of or very often or for quite a long time. But uh, I guess bottom line is uh, ice off can be a great time to fish a trout lake. It's not necessarily, but you can have great days. Yeah, it, it makes sense that they're going to be hungry coming out of the winter and uh, and maybe concentrated near the edge of the ice as it melts back, uh, I'm thinking. Um, and I haven't either. I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly a cold-weather fan of fly fishing I'm usually waiting well, for the warm-up. Well, some places, you know, if the ice is thick enough, it, it actually starts to get fairly comfortable before the ice can start, you know, yeah. the actual yeah. lake become exposed, so it, it's not necessarily that bad. I've, I've done that ice out fishing. It's been a long time, but I've done it when it was really cold and I had, you know, ski gloves on, and I've done it yeah. other times when it really wasn't all that cold out, but of course you're yeah. near that big sheet of ice to start with, so even if other places are warmer, you're you're close to a big, huge chunk of ice, so it's going to be cold. Yeah, yeah. Well, our, the next show we're doing, uh, called it Mighty Mouse, and we'll talk with Rich Pulaski about uh, fishing mice. And um, and I'm thinking that might be uh, real interesting right about ice out time. Uh, you know, dragging a mouse around the edge of the ice, that's got to look look enticing, <laughs> I would think. But uh, we'll see uh, next springtime. But, yeah, anxious. He's been experimenting a lot with, with mice um, on lakes, so uh, I'm anxious to hear what he's done and created some new patterns and stuff like that, too. So, uh, so very interesting, yeah. Um, Tip 102 on page 80, you're talking about finding a reason to set with a strike indicator. This is a big thing I know, and we've talked about it before on shows, but um, uh, the, the consensus is, as you've documented there, that, that many of the experts out there say, hey, you know, we missed so many shots uh, because we're not setting the hook. So any advice on, on you know, when to set that hook with indicators? Well, you know, um, you probably had, I'm assuming, well, I should ask, have you had Rick Hayfley on the show? Yes, a uh, long time ago. It's been quite a few years. Okay. Yes, well, I yeah. figured you had. He, uh, you know, I fished with him, and, and Rick is a former full-time entomologist um, and has written fly fishing books and a book on nymph fishing, in fact. So now I'm giving him, him a big plug. But uh, That's right. <laughs> he made such a great comment that I think it's in my book, but I, I'm not going to take the everybody's time to read it now, but he said, uh, try to find a reason to strike on every drift of your indicator. Try to find something. Even if there isn't anything, just make a guess. And what that mm -hmm. does, which I think is really true, is it starts really turning you into that indicator because the fact is a trout can come up and take that fly in its mouth and spit it out, and really almost nothing shows on the indicator. Sometimes nothing does show. I think there are certainly fish that take flies with indicators, and you never know. And it's probably true with all the other kinds of nymph fishing, check nymphing even, although that's a that's a more mm -hmm. direct, sensitive Contact, yeah. fishing, at least if it's done close in. But, um, yeah, reading the indicator, I think people are, are way too casual about it. They wait for that indicator just to go shooting down, which it sometimes does, but much better to, to strike quickly and lightly if the indicator does anything, if it seems to stall a little bit, if it sort of turns up, if it if it just gives a little shudder, just tighten and see if there's something on there. And uh, it you, you can't overdo that sensitivity. That that indicator is 
everything. That's, that's your whole communication device for your nymph. And, and you know, I should say, uh, this the check nymphing, it's got a lot of names now, check nymphing, tight line nymphing, and I, I wrote about it in the book. It can be deadly, and I do enjoy doing it, and I do it, and I've been doing it for a while, quite a while. But I still feel, at least in my own fishing, that strike indicator nymphing, um, it's still the basis of my nymphing. I can reach out much further. I can reach water that I can't reach any other way. Uh, you have to be at a good angle to check nymph, and with an indicator, you can put it. You can even put it downstream if you have to, and just feed out line. It's more versatile. It covers covers water. The check nymphing can't. That said, I don't want to sound like I'm like I'm the Grinch concerning check nymphing because I do right. it. I like it, and yeah. I think it can be deadly. Yeah, yeah. We were, uh, I think, an interview a month or two ago. I interviewed George Daniel, and you know, we were talking about that, and. and Basically, you know, it comes down to uh, you use whatever is effective for that moment, and uh, nothing is, is good at all times. You know what I mean? So, um, exactly. And that was his opinion too. And he's a he's a big contact nymphor, um, and uh, but but he said same thing you just said. There are times I can't reach him with that. I can't get a, a contact uh, nymph rig down and, and maintain contact. So you have to get. Some kind of suspension device. Some some I saw recently, Skip, were they had like a, almost a little antenna on top, so that if that antenna moved, like if it went downstream or upstream just a little bit, then that was an indicator that something's happening under there, even if the indicator didn't really move in the water, but it was just changing the line direction underneath would tip that 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 little antenna kind of thing. I, I forget what they're called. Uh, but it was something I hadn't seen before. But remember the old bobbers when we were kids that had the big oh, yeah. long stick sure. on top? Push and bait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what those were back then, right? When that, that big long antenna on those went over to the, the side, you, you had them. But, yeah, I think we kind yeah. of we, we go back to those days of where that bobber went down, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, with a catfish or something, and, and you knew you had them. But that's not the way with fly fishing. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, I, I um, absolutely agree. And I was going to say, yeah, I, I remember those those actual just out-and-out -out true bobbers that did have that, that little stick or tower on them so that you could yeah. read that. And, and, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I haven't experimented with that too much. I last couple of years I've really gotten onto these screw-on indicators. They have the little cap that's easy to lose. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I've learned how not to lose those, of course, because it's not much value when you lose the cap, but the screw yeah. on top. But I've been yeah. using those a lot, partly because they're so lightweight um, and easy to see. They kind of they're kind of almost fluorescent. But um, yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, it's been interesting to watch the evolution of strike indicators because once in a while I still use a corky because I can get those in sizes you can't get any other indicator, and sometimes I use tiny tiny indicators for, for really tough trout that are feeding just under the surface. But uh, the old Corky, I was using that probably 30 years ago, I'm guessing. That's a steelhead lure that everybody discovered they could use as a strike indicator and mm. really makes, still makes a real good one. But it's been funny to watch strike putty and yarn indicators and all this stuff come and, come and go or come and stay. And they, yeah. most of the indicators that have gotten popular have had their own unique advantages. So, you know, you got to experiment and see what you like. Yeah, the, the two, the one you were talking about a minute ago are called Airlock, 
Um, yeah. The nice thing about those with the little nut is that they don't crimp the line and they can be moved easily, which I really like. Um, I the other one that I... Oh, I'm Pardon sorry. I was, gonna, I was just going to agree with you. I, I hate indicators that crimp my leader. Yeah, yeah. The other one that's out there that I'm uh, I talked at the IFPD show uh, is the the folks that make it is that New Zealand strike indicator, which has the, the wool and the little uh, attachment mechanism, and it doesn't crimp the line and can be moved easily too. So, but it's real soft wool kind of thing, which is kind of nice. And I've yet to try it, but it, it looks really very good too. Yeah, it seems like every year a new one comes out, right? You know, but um, I think the trend is to make sure it's movable and make sure it's not crimping your line to damage the leader. So I think those right. are right. I absolutely agree with you. If you're not adjusting the distance between your indicator and your fly when you're fishing a trout stream, then either you've found a trout stream that's exactly one depth and speed of current throughout its entire length, which is impossible, or else you should be moving that indicator, adjusting for the different depths and the different speeds of current. Yeah, right, right. Trying to get down to where the fish are. And uh, uh, that can change uh, significantly in just one drift as well, right? So uh, I've, uh, I think it was maybe Jason Randall that was talking about lifting that indicator up and down as you do your drift, depending on the depth of the water. So sometimes you have to pull it off the water and and put it back down just so that you can get those flies to settle. I thought it was kind of a unique uh, approach, too, that uh, that I've been trying. Um, Stuart Van Dorn uh, in Illinois, he wrote in and asked, uh, it seems that while we focus on tying flies with lively, sparkly, shiny, bright materials, how important do you think it is also that we uh, animate the fly? And you were talking about this in a, a minute ago. So for instance, your crayfish pattern. How would you retrieve it? Well, you know, the, the first thing I would say, Stuart, is that, and let's just maybe for the moment stick with the crayfish pattern. The most important yeah. thing as to how I would work that fly is I would watch a crayfish. <laughs> and that just goes for all flies that imitate things. Uh, that's what I was saying before, sort of. We're kind of, we're kind of looped back, but... Um, you know, if, if the insect or the creature moves, try to imitate, not just, don't just make your fly move, but try to make your fly move like that creature. Uh, crayfish, for example, they'll kind of crawl along the bottom. I have a way of doing that for smallmouth where I just skid the fly a little bit along the bottom and let it sit. Uh, I also will cast the fly, get it low, and then retrieve it in darts because if you ever spook a crayfish in the shallows, and I've done that a million times, Boy, they can move. They start flipping that tail, and they <laughs> let, let their legs fly out behind them, and uh, they really move, and it's impulses. So study the thing that you're imitating. That's, I think that's the most important thing of all. As far as flash material, flashy materials and flies, um, sometimes they're really appropriate, especially in attractor flies and sometimes in imitative flies because, for example, chronomids, mayflies, when they're ready to hatch, they have a lot of shiny gases under their shucks to help them hatch, but uh, it can be easy to get too much sparkle in a fly to where it stops looking like an insect or whatever it's imitating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we're um, doing it. Now, there's a certain thing about, you know, where people, it's like uh, when to use a like, uh, let, let's say we're talking streamers or whatever, uh, you know, 
what is it, light flies on light days, dark flies on dark days. Uh, is that the, the way it works? That's not something that I do a lot. I, uh, hmm. uh, I don't want to sound like I'm plugging everything that I... <laughs> no, no, I, no, that's fine. Well, I can't avoid it here, but... A fly that I fish a lot is called the Morris Minnow, and it's crazy bright. And the first time I fished it about 15 years ago, I thought, well, this isn't going to work. This is ridiculous. And then ever since then, I've caught almost all my biggest trout on it. So apparently it's not too bright, but um, which kind of goes against what I said earlier. But, you know, this is fishing. You don't, don't expect the rules to always work. Um, but, no, I, I really just pretty much fish the same flies, depending, regardless of the weather, as far as streamers for trout anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering what I was getting at is with the light and dark is is there and I guess what you're saying is, is no, there is no particular rule about that. But you know, when you're using a bright, flashy fly, um, works in dark water, deep water, as well as uh, in sunlit uh, surface water. Is, is that what oh, you're sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I um, I guess um, well, there was a thought there, but it it just took off on its own. Go get um, Carol. She'll find it for you. <laughs> she is my memory, really. <laughs> yeah. That's what's happened. Um, well, you know, one thing I will say is that I do believe, and I don't know, I, I haven't studied this. I'm not an expert at this particular thing or maybe anything, but I do believe from my own observations that in colored water that dark flies show up better than light flies, the exact opposite of what you would think. So if there's a a color in the water, if it's a tea stain or if it's a kind of a muddy color from runoff, the darker fly will show up in the water better than a light fly. And I think that what, what happens is that dark color, like black or purple even, uh, it has a, that, that color has a density that a pale color doesn't have. It, it just gets lost. But the dark color shows up as this sort of silhouette that, that really is, is easier to perceive in the water. And I, I feel like I catch more fish with dark flies if the water has color to it. Mm -hmm. The other thing I've noticed, that thought came back for a moment. Let's see if I can catch it. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about imitation, about imitating crayfish and bugs. Um, it's easy to get caught up in that when you first start out in fly fishing because you hear so much about it. But a good chunk of the time, probably more often than not in most cases, fish are not feeding on one particular thing over and over. They're feeding on a variety of things. And then it becomes more important how you present your fly than having just the right fly. So I, I just think that's an important thing to tell beginners because they read the stuff that I and others write, and we love to write about hatches and selective fish, but most of the time that's not really happening. Well, that brings up... Tip number 220, uh, 197, <laughs> imitations versus attractors, which and when. Um, and I was doing, in fact, I wish I had the article in front of me, but uh, there was an article out there about, um, and maybe it was on a fly, fly uh, site selling uh, flies, but it was talking about searching patterns, attractor patterns, imitation patterns, and, um, you know, the difference in, between them. So what are your thoughts on those, the differences between them and when they should be used? That's, you know, these are all excellent questions, but that one certainly is. And um, I have a pretty simple formula with trout. And, you know, I, let me ask you, Roger, I don't 
I have the book in front of me, but I didn't dig up that tip. What symbols does it have? Does it just have trout, or does it have all the different? Oh, that's all four. Yep. Okay. All four. Okay. Well, and it should. <laughs> but the first thing I would say to your very good question, excellent question, is that imitation typically is more important with trout than with any of the other species, at least in this book, both basses and panfish. Trout are the big imitation fishes. It certainly can be important with smallmouth and largemouth, and probably even occasionally with panfishes. I've definitely seen it with large and smallmouth, but it's very common with trout. That said, as I was saying before, most of the time trout are kind of feeding on whatever comes along. So then it opens up a lot of possibilities if they're just open-minded and have to have to take each bit of food on a case-by-case basis. It's, uh, your choices get pretty wild. But here's what I do. Let's say I'm walking up to a trout stream and I don't know what to fish. I'll do something that I think is very smart, if I'm smart, that particular day. I will turn over some rocks or use a kick net or something like that and see what's down there. And then I'll put on a fly that's imitative. This is assuming trout aren't rising and there's not a hatch going on. And then I'll try imitating that with my nymph. And if that's not catching as many fish as I feel it should after a little while, or I just feel like, you know, there's no reason not to, I'll try an attractor fly. And that's, an attractor fly is a fly that does not look like anything found in nature. It's intentionally made not to imitate anything real. But usually an attractor fly sort of looks like something alive, although sometimes very bizarre. Um, I will try an attractor nymph if the, I feel the imitative nymph isn't as effective as it should be. And a lot of times, I'd say one out of three times, the attractor nymph will catch more fish than the imitative nymph. And there are lots of theories about why that is. Uh, some of them make a lot of sense to me. But the bottom line is, that's just a fact of life in my fishing, is if I'm fishing a trout stream, and I don't care if it's in the south, the tailwater in the south, or it's out here in the west, or it's over in the, in the east, if I, if about one-third or one-fourth of the time, I will catch more fish, sometimes way more fish on an attractor than on an imitative pattern. And then the other oh. part of your question was about searching patterns. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's kind of a Dave Hughes terminology. Um, yeah, searching pattern. yeah, that's where I, I got it from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's what you said. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. he loves that term, and it's a good term. Um, well, of course, Dave's a fine writer, too. But um, it, it simply means a fly that you trust to just go around and try to find a fish. And, for example, for a lot of people, that would be maybe something real established, like the gold-ribbed hare's ear, possibly with a bead head. Or it could be... Um, the parachute atoms. It's just a, a fly that that's versatile, look, can, can imitate a bunch of things, or can just look like something edible. Uh, it might be the Klaus or minnow for, for, um, for smallmouth bass. I, c- I could go on like this, but we have our flies that we trust that are well known to be very versatile flies. And if you don't know what to put on, then you can put on one of those and just fish it with good faith, and a lot of times that will do the trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, difference being, I think the key difference that you said was uh, one is just kind of wild and crazy, and, and you don't know why the fish eat it, and the other one resembles something. <laughs> it doesn't have to mm-hmm. be anything specific, but it does resemble something, uh, and they seem to like it. Um, I was just looking in, um, you've got in here, uh, 
several sets of flies, and I know some of the uh, some of the latest um, flies for contact nymphing really not too representative of anything. They look kind of wild and crazy, and different colors, hot spots, and stuff. But they catch fish, you know. Go figure. But um, and then other things like um, the stimulator, you know, very buggy, right? Um, mm -hmm. And attracts. Uh, my partner Julie's got a stimulator with, without the hook on one of these uh, little cat rods. And it's like a little fishing rod with a string, and you put something on it to tease the cat. So we've got a stimulator on there. <laughs> and uh, uh, she's been. She's been hanging it over ledges and stuff in the house. So I walk around and I see this bug on the wall, you know, I go, and it's the damn stimulator hanging over the ledge. I, I think it's great because it looks so buggy, you know. It just looks so buggy. But it um, does, and if it were bouncing around the air, it looked like a flying insect for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a I, great fly. I've got so many fish on that fly, you know. It's yeah, it's one of the most popular dry flies. In, probably in the world these days. You know, Randall came up with a good one there. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I think of imitative flies as being of two types. There's kind of general imitations, which I think the stimulator is, even if you read Randall's books, which have been out of print for a while, but um, he's, he'll say in there, the yellow, you know, this stimulator imitates golden stone flies, hmm. grasshoppers, he'll name two other things, and, and, uh, and he's probably right. Those are sort of loose imitations or versatile imitations, and then you get uh, flies that are very specific. And the ones that come to mind, again, they're mine, of course, because I created them and spent a lot of time, ton of time with them, but I have a, an anatomical, for example, green drake and an anatomical uh, pale, morning, pale morning dun. And these are nymphs that look very much, very much like the real specific nymph. So mm -hmm. if you have a hatch of pale morning duns and you're fishing the nymph, the anatomical PMD is going to give you an edge because it looks just like them. Whereas you could fish something very general, uh, like, a, like even a soft tackle, and yeah, the fish might take it, but I think you have an edge with the more, more accurate fly. But the more accurate fly is going to imitate fewer things. So if you're, right. if you want an imitation, you know, if you're not sure what the trout are taking, then I would go with the more general fly. Yeah, good point, because if, if you're imitating something, you better be spot on, right? I mean, it doesn't cover as many bases. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Well, for um, advantage, <laughs> although there's, a, there's another tip in here that uh, talks in the book that talks about where I talk, <laughs> what am I saying, it talks, um, about the importance of how you fish a fly versus what fly you fish. And really, I think it's typically more important how you fish a fly than whether or not you have just the right fly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's important. Getting it in the zone, right, is more important than... than, than yeah, and making it behave it. and all that stuff, right. And fishing it in the water where the fish are, that helps. Yeah, I'm looking at um, your foundation set of flies in the book, 207 for uh, trout streams, and oh, okay. uh, seeing those those old favorites there, you know, Beathead Pheasant Tail, Bitch Creek, Copper John, Dave's Hopper, Elk Hair Caddis, Parachute Adams, I think that may be one of the best flies around, uh, Griffith's Gnat, uh, you know, Stimulator, Royal Wolf, 
Uh, God, those fives have lasted for so many years, you know. Oh, yeah. Still are effective, yeah. Yeah, so those are the, some of the ones you, you put in there um, for trout. You also had uh, Chernobyl ant and clouds minnow as well. Um, and then lake flies you've got here. Um, uh, why don't you talk about some, is this, uh, what's this sparkle furry dragon? That's a new one for me. Is that one of oh, your flies? Oh, one of my patterns. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't great. Nice going, things. Roger. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you that that dollar later. Okay. <laughs> Tell us about that fly. Sure. No, glad you asked. Well, I put that in there, honestly, because I fished it a ton, and it's really available. I mean, it's you can find it online. Your fly shop may carry it. It's one of my patterns, but it's tied commercially, and it's 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 been a big seller. So occasionally I, I did put my own flies in these collections, but only because they've been available commercially for a long time and because I trust them. Um, yeah. Most of these flies in these collections are not my patterns. The, the great majority of them are not. But what yeah. I was trying to do in the book, I, I really think it's important because I, I fish a lot with people who are new to fly fishing or just don't do it that much, and some questions just keep coming up. And one of them is, for example, if we're fishing a trout stream, they say, look, just tell me, what flies do I need to bring, have on me when I go to trout streams? And so I gave that a lot of thought and uh, came up with a collection of, let's see, how many is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Just twelve flies, unless there's one on the next page. Mm-hmm. Oh, there are two more. So just 14 flies out of the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of fly patterns out there. And, and I tried to pick ones that you could go online or go to your fly shop and actually find. I didn't want to be, if I had a lot of faith in a fly and you couldn't get it easily, it's not in here. But I, I even had a guy right off the bat do a review of this book on Amazon, and he said, this is one of the things I love about this book, is that somebody finally nailed down a list of flies. So I just I just think it's something that people need and want, especially when they're first getting into fly fishing. Yeah, yeah. Well, but did you want me to tell you about, about this yeah, free dragon? Because I really didn't. Yeah. No, you haven't yet. <laughs> well, I'm calling you out on it. I've been fishing this thing for a long time. It's a, uh, It's got a body made of rabbit fur so that when you fish the fly, the body actually moves a little bit. It kind of bends and moves. And it's all almost all soft materials, so that when, which I, I find I hook and hold more trout on flies that have soft materials in general, especially big flies that are soft, because the trout comes up and bites onto the fish, and the trout comes up and bites onto the fly, and if the fly has stiff parts in it, it creates all these leverage problems, but if the materials are soft, they just move out of the way, and the trout gets the hook. So it's just a fly that I really trust, and that the uh, Solitude Flag Company picked up a long time ago, and and it uh, works. Is it supposed to be some damsel representation or just just buggy? It imitates a dragonfly nymph. A dragonfly nymph? Okay. Dragonfly nymph. And I fish it mostly uh, mostly in trout lakes, but I have caught smallmouth and I have caught largemouth and I have caught a variety of panfishes on that fly. Because they, they all live in water that has dragonfly nymphs. So what's your retrieve method for that fly? Uh, it varies a bit. I have my little backstory. I had my own flock or herd or bevy of dragonfly nymphs at one point, and I got to study them really all the time. Uh, this is years ago. Carol put in a, this little pond, 
And one year we had a bunch of dragonfly nymphs in there. And so I would walk out in the daytime and take a break and just watch them. And what I can tell you about dragonfly nymphs is they just kind of climb around slowly most of the time. But if they are startled, they really dart. They, they have this way of shooting uh, water out their nether regions in a kind of a jet propulsion manner. And they can really move. And they move in darts. It's almost like a tiny crayfish. And so I'll fish, uh, I'll fish dragonfly, this, this one or any other dragonfly. There are other good patterns for dragonfly nymphs out there. But I will fish it um, on a full sinking line, usually. And I'll fish it right off the bottom, within a foot. And I'll either work it slowly, just in little pulses, or every once in a while I'll give it some quick pulls just to, you know, sometimes if a fish is coming near that dragonfly and it darts, I think there's a killer instinct or a hunting instinct that kicks in. So I experiment. But most of the time it's just a kind of a slow pulsing retrieve. Hmm. Okay. Okay, good. Good. I'll have to try that one. Um, let's take a quick break, and um, then when we come back, uh, we'll start to move into talking about some bass and panfish here as well. So I've got a bunch of questions here from our listeners, and I want to make sure I get all those in. So um, uh, stick with me, and we'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration habits like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. FFI's core values remain unchanged, to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, uh, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community with the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. If you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Skip Morris about fly fishing tips for chop bass and panfish. If you'd like to ask uh, Skip a question, go to our homepage at Ask About Fly Fishing and fill out that form. Send it to us, and we'll try to get your question answered here uh, very shortly. Let me just check in on that, see if we've got um, anything. Okay. So um, we did get a question from Lee in Connecticut. Um, we'd like to know, hear your thoughts on popular colors to use, or is it really about the shape of the fly? Hmm. That's, that's an interesting question. Um, I have a list in the book. Here, I'm talking about the book again, but... <laughs> But it's a, a list that I've come around to after a lot of years, and it's, it applies especially to trout, but I think to other species as well. And really, um, the most important points in imitating something are first the action, and then uh, it's the size, and then you go down this list of things like the silhouette or the shape. And, hmm. But really, the least important thing is the exact color. It's, it's the, the funny thing is about it is that that is what new fly fishers worry about the most. They'll have a fly that's twice the size of the natural. 
They won't make it move like the natural, but they'll have the color spot on, and that doesn't work <laughs> because mm. those other two factors are much more important than the color. So um, color can count. You get really particular fish. Um, some, well, there are two ways that color counts. One is in imitation. You know, sometimes if the fish is really cagey and been fished for a lot, maybe even caught and released a couple times, they can get down to where they do care about you getting the color close. Um, and then the other time is when a color sort of excites a fish. So let's say you're fishing in a tractor fly and it's purple or pink or wine red or something like some unnatural color, and, and that just happens to be the magic color that day that really gets the fish going. And I've seen trout, for example, really go for purple, and I've seen them go for, for pink and uh, red. <laughs> and those are not Fire engine red, for example, is not a color you'd expect a trout to go for, but I have a lake mm -hmm. just literally minutes from my house. It's a good trout lake, and the best fly there on average is a bright red, just fire engine red leech, and there is no, as far as I know, there is no fire engine, engine red leech in the world, a natural one, but that fly works, and they just seem to like that color over and over, and I don't know why. Yeah, and lately, uh, you know, I'm seeing on a lot of the more modern patterns this, you know, the hot spots, the bright fluorescent orange or red hot spot, uh, just a little touch of color in a lot of these nymphs. Uh, that for some reason, again, you don't see insects with that on them, unless it's an egg sac or something like that. But that's not what these are representing, I don't think. Uh, but who knows, you know, what triggers them. Fish are crazy. You have to... They're, yeah. as, they're as crazy as we are, human as human beings are. I mean, yeah, yeah. You ask any. I mean, I know a, a psychologist, and you ask her, if people make sense, and she just rolls her eyes and can't believe you even asked that. Well, a lot of times fish are the same. They, you just have to try to figure out what's going to work, and and all the logic, and all the all the rules, and all the past experience in the world doesn't count for a whole lot. You just try crazy things, and sometimes crazy works. Yeah. Interesting thing, I just, in fact, uh, driving up here to the mountains uh, uh, this afternoon, I, I listened to a lot of audio books, and I was, uh, I, I've actually read a, a few of this guy's uh, books in the past, but his name is Franz Duvall, and he's written books on, he studies uh, bonobos and chimps, and, you know, uh, really? he's a biologist that um, has done that for years, and uh, other animals as well. But he had a part in his book about fish, and I thought it was kind of interesting in that he said he had um, trying to figure out how fish communicate. And this is something that I hadn't really heard anybody in the fly fishing world talk about, and you may not have heard about it either. Um, but um, he was talking about um, that fish give off, and I can't remember the word. Uh, he says it's a, like a sugar molecule or something that um, warns other fish of danger. So... He had um, he had two uh, I think there were goldfish ponds in his backyard separated from each other, and um, I can't remember what happened, but something happened traumatic. Oh yeah, uh, one of the goldfish in one of the ponds got stuck in a little piece of netting that was hanging low over the water to keep the birds out, and he thrashed in that netting for I guess hours and hours. Uh, until uh, the, this, okay. this guy finally let him out, right? And all the fish in that pond retreated into hiding places for like 24 or 48 hours. 
um, oh. because of this essence or whatever uh, that the struggling fish had. So they all hid out. And then he noticed the other pond, which, you know, wasn't connected via water, that all the fish over there were hiding too. And um, it took him a while to figure out until he figured out that the filtration system and circulation system served both ponds. So it was actually pumping their <laughs> organic chemical wow. across to the other one, and all those fish got scared and went and hid. So it just made me start thinking today about, you know, when there's days it seems like all the fish are down or nobody's biting or, you know, do we really know the cause of that at times? You know, could it be something like that that we're, we're, we're really not, you know, aware of? Certainly they talk a lot about um, um, atmospheric pressure, right? That's, uh, I guess, an unknown factor in putting fish down or setting them off. But this whole chemical yeah. thing brought a whole new light to it in my mind. And have you heard anything like that before? No, but I mean it kind of makes sense to a degree to me with my from my experience. I um, mm -hmm. that that made me think of a, a pond. I used to I used to fish a pond on a a couple of ponds on a golf course that had some big trout. I mean they were planters, but they were up to eight pounds, and uh, and they were smart because people fish for them all the time. You actually paid to fish the ponds on the golf course. <laughs> on the golf course, <laughs> that operation is still going, but um, they uh, you would throw a fly in this pond that had some color in the water, a four-acre pond, and you would catch a couple of fish, boom, boom, and then it didn't matter where you went on that pond, it seemed like they all knew about the fly. Hmm. I mean, that, this even goes beyond what you were saying. This is a really specific yeah. thing they actually knew about the fly, and over and over this happened to us, and we'd look at each other, our, I or, and my fishing partner, and we'd say, this can't be possible, but it kept happening. We'd, we'd throw in a fly, and two or three fish would go for it, and then the whole pond knew about it, and we'd have to try something else. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot we don't know yet, you know. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, I guess that, that's, it's just another dimension of fly fishing that uh, we always have to be learning and studying because, we, you know, there is no magic formula, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, and if there were, I mean, if, if you could... If you could do the math, and then catch fish every time, I think yeah. we'd all give this up eventually. It's, it's, yeah. The mystery yeah. is a big part of the appeal to me. Yeah. I try to remind yeah, myself of that when I can't figure out how to catch fish because, you know, then yeah. I'm not yeah. filled with the mystery as I am when I'm able to work around it. The end of September, we went up to um, the Bighorn, my friend and I, and we floated it for two days. We caught three fish between the two of us. There was an algae bloom going on. Oh. And just no one was catching fish, even with guides. Guides get off their water, and they're flying to cut one fish for the day. So, you know, uh, whatever, you know, this algae bloom was affecting all those fish um, in that river. It was just terrible. Uh, I've never seen a river like that. But there again, you know, um, biological factors happening uh, that, you know, can put them all down for, for whatever reason. We don't really understand why, but... You know, but that's yeah, I wonder if it was an oxygen thing. Yeah, I don't know. So lack of oxygen, then they kind of hunker down and just rest or whatever. Yeah. Um, maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Um, nobody seemed to know, uh, but everybody knew that it was just bad fishing. <laughs> so, I've got a tip for you, Roger. Okay. Time that ready. happens, you yep. have to have a really open mind. But, I mean, if you go to someplace like Henry's Fork of the Snake, you go there to fish Henry's Fork of the Snake, 
but if Henry's Fork of the Snake just is off and nobody can figure out what's going on, um, change water. And yeah, I mean, you, yeah. you may have already known that, but, I mean, that, that can pay off so well. Um, there's usually something else around, and it may not be what you had in mind, but it could be really good or even great. I, if, I, if a river's really off, I, I was at a, on a river this summer that had gotten too warm. It had it had some big lakes on it upstream, a lot of that flat water sitting there warming up, and it had some swampy mm-hmm. areas. The water stalled and sat in the sun, and and I just didn't realize that when we when I booked us there. So we were stuck in this lodging for a week, and so we put our heads together after a couple of days, and we realized there were very few fish in the river. They'd moved downstream, and we said, okay, what are our options? And we ended up fishing creeks and having some mm-hmm. fishing, and we ended up doing more driving than we wanted, but we we chase down some other waters that had fish. And if if there had been a smallmouth stream or a, or a bluegill pond nearby, I probably would have fished that too. Uh, yeah. That's something I learned the hard way is, is keep an open mind because there's almost always other fishing around, and if the fishing that you came for is off, uh, you know, don't, don't yeah. kill Look yourself around. over yeah. come home angry at yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, luckily, you know, we'd only planned two days for there, and we moved on to, to other rivers and... Um, uh, okay. That's fine. But we both said we should have probably left after the first day. But you, you, after the first day, you know, you're like shaking your head. Is it me? What, what, what's going on here? You know. But after talking to a few guides, we should have left the first day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but I remember that's you, a hard call. <laughs> yeah. You 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 brought back a good memory though. When uh, my father and I and my son flew into a fly-in camp in Alaska, we were going for silver salmon, and the silver salmon were a little late coming up river. Uh, this was on the oh, Kodiak yeah. River. And the guy says, you know what, we're not, we were catching a lot of chum salmon, and they were fun and stuff, but he says, let's go for a day and go up this Cache Creek, this side creek. And we went up there, and we had the best day of the week on that side creek that, that you know, we, we may not have ever fished if it wasn't for the silvers being late. But, uh, you know, we were catching 20-inch, 26-inch uh, uh, Dolly Vardens and Chars that, and, and tripling up on that little creek, and we had the best day of our lives up there. And it was, you know, it was, it was plan B, you know. It was plan B. Yeah, so that's, you, yeah, you that's know, exactly uh, what I was talking about. And I hope I didn't sound yeah. like I was scolding you. but <laughs> No, no, no. It, it's, but, you know, I was really talking to your listeners more than anything. But, oh, yeah, oh, yeah no, I think, yeah, I, I think I think that's a very good tip, you know, because you don't want to give up sometimes. And you, you always think, is it me? Is it the flies? Is it my technique? Is, am I just off? Or, but sometimes it's just the water. <laughs> you need to move on. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah I've yeah. fished with some killer fishermen, I mean, great fishermen, and I've seen them just absolutely work their tails off to get one or two fish in water that was full of fish. So, yeah. the, you know, you cannot force a fish to eat. You cannot, yeah. you know, you can't yeah. threaten them. You can't, you know, whatever you do, you, you can't come up with a way to force them to open their yeah. mouths and take in your fly. Okay, I got a bunch of questions in front of me from our listeners about bass and panfish, so let's roll through them. Uh, Mark Nelson in Washington, he says, I'm from Western Washington. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this. Poulsbo? Poulsbo? Yeah, it's not very and, far from uh, where I live. <laughs> oh, okay, so listen up. He says, uh, I, that's where he lives, and he says, many lakes seem to be managed for a trout fishery. Do you have any suggestions for resources to find lakes to fish for bass and panfish? Any specific suggestions without giving up secret spots? Yeah, that's, I mean, this one's so easy because the guy might as well live next door to me. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to look him up. We're going to show up at dinner time tomorrow. 
Okay. You know, there, I know for a fact, because I live here, that there are a lot of lakes that do have trout, uh, bass and panfish around here. And, uh, you know, the, I really shouldn't name any, but I will tell him this. He should go, I think he should go to, to a local fly shop. And there is one in Paulsbo. It's a real good one. I teach classes there. And uh, ask for some advice, and he can go online. Uh, there are a number of sources. The Fish and Game will tell you what, what fishes are in different lakes. We, Western Washington, in fact, Washington in general, is lake central. We have just, I think, King County, which is the, not a particularly big county that Seattle is in, I remember reading has 400 named lakes. We just have lakes all over the place, and we have them here on the peninsula, and they have them over in the Kitsap Peninsula where he lives, and uh, a lot of them have warm water fishes as well as trout. What's the name of the, the shop that you told him to look up? The name of the shop, oh, he's going to love this. It's Peninsula Outfitters. Peninsula Outfitters, okay. Well, there you go, Mark. Check them out, and I'll uh, point you in the right direction. Eric and I believe Wednesday I got a little question. <laughs> yeah, Eric in Bloomsdale, Missouri, wrote in and asked, uh, he says, as a rule, bass seem to swallow lures and such. I've never fished, uh, fly fished for bass. Does, uh, do bass swallow the flies? Um, in my experience, let's see. Uh, let me look at that question. I have a printout of it. Okay, so he doesn't specify which kind of bass, but I'm going to uh, guess no. that he's talking about largemouth. It doesn't really matter, actually. I, I don't very often find that largemouth take a fly so deeply that it's an issue. They don't swallow it. Uh -huh. um, the problem they have in conventional fishing, because I've studied conventional bass fishing to learn what they have learned. I mean, they're, those tournament guys are, men and women are, are deadly, and they know yeah. a lot. So I'm not, I'm not above learning from them at all. Um, they use those plastic worms, which are often scented, and they feel alive. Then they have a problem with the fish swallowing the, the worms. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, but with flies, I haven't seen that. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, it's weird how that, uh, you know, I've, I've helped my little grandson at times with some power bait on there, and the darn fish always swallow that, you know. I'm always trying to dig that out of their throat. I don't know. Uh, I think it's just he's late on the reaction. <laughs> it's that well, you know <laughs> yeah, so by the time he says his actual up, food. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, he's, he's got a few things to learn. Uh, he's only five, so he's, 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 at least he's catching fish already. Uh, Tom Melville, Staten Island, New York. Uh, could you simply downsize a bass fly for panfish? Uh, absolutely. Um, people do it all the time. And a lot of the panfish flies are, in fact, just reduced bass flies. Um, if, I don't know if, if uh, Tom is a fly tire, but if he is, uh, like a bass bug, you tie a bass bug on a little hook and it becomes a panfish bug. And if you, if you buy a cork bass popper or you make one or you make one out of foam and then you make one that's much smaller, say a size 10 hook or maybe 8 at the biggest, then you've got a panfish fly or a small bass fly. Um, mm -hmm. This brings up an interesting point, and this is something I got a long time ago from a book. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Um, it's the, the author is Jack Ellis, and the book, I believe, is, I don't know if it's out on a print or not. It probably is, but it was The Panfishes, A Journey of Discovery, I think was the name of it. Anyway, in there, he has a fly called the Fence Rider. And uh, so I'm stretching this question from... <laughs> from Fine, go ahead. Go for it. <laughs> but he 
he had a flag called the Fence Rider, and the main thing about the Fence Rider was that it was an, a precise size of hook. And at this particular size of hook, and I've got that in this book, that's one of the tips, so I've got the size and all that and the different brands. I couldn't tell you offhand, but it's a certain size that if you fish that, you can catch large panfish, but it's still big enough to interest a two, maybe even a three-pound bass if things are going well. And that's a lot of fun. And he calls that fence riding because you kind of got one leg on both sides of the fence. You're fishing for hmm. for a panfish on one side and bass on the other, but, but you're doing it all at once. And if you get this size right, you can you can catch a bunch of big panfish, big bluegills, but you can also catch largemouth bass. And it's really fun to do that because you never know what you're going to catch next. And mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy that aspect. Did you, and it's called the Fence Rider? That's the name of fence the Fence Rider. I, as I recall, I haven't seen one for a little while, but hmm. I'm not going to look it up in the book because it will take too long. But uh, I believe it was just a little hair bug. And the, the whole thing was the size of the hook. Yeah. Well, I notice in the, you know, you've got the, the flies in here broken out by, you know, trout and then uh, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass and lakes and, and then the panfish. But there's a few that rear their heads, you know, on all the pages, like Copper John, Woolly Worms, uh, Woolly Booger, you know. Um, mm -hmm. and I think you said earlier some of these flies work for all the fish in all the waters, depending on the size, of course. But... Uh, I mean, some flies. But then there was, a, I think I posted it on my uh, uh, Facebook uh, feed or shared it the other day. Somebody showed a, a picture of a, a trout with a, another trout in it with a tail sticking out. And that, that, that you know, that, that trout it was trying to swallow was almost as big as it was, you know. And oh, was gosh. Like, oh, my gosh, you know. Wow. Uh, so, so even if it is too big for them, they'll still try to eat it, you know. They're gluttons at times. Uh, and, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, I, everybody who's fished streamers for trout, or actually, or for largemouth or smallmouth bass, has caught fish that were just barely bigger than the streamer. So, yeah, I don't yeah. know if they were trying to pick a fight with it, or if they were trying to eat it, or you know what. But yeah, oh yeah, that happens all. That happens pretty often. Um, Scott uh, Deweese in Indiana wrote in. He says, "When fly fishing for bass or panfish, do you?" Hopper dropper. If so, what is your most effective flies? Let's see, so where did I put that? I heard you, but I'm just going to take a look at it to make sure. Um, similar, similar. Um, I'll use. I won't use a hopper typically, but when I'm fishing for largemouth, smallmouth bass, mainly largemouth bass and panfish, I would say. Um, and the panfish, are, I'm talking about ones that tend to hang around the shallows and will feed on the surface, which can be, which is obviously bluegill, but also, uh, just for example, uh, 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 pumpkin seeds. I will, I have sometimes, and sometimes still do, uh, use a fairly large fly that might be even too big for the panfish, but big enough for bass, and then I'll put, uh, tie off the bend of the hook, a lighter bit of leader, and on the end of that, I'll tie some weighted fly. I use a fly that's still not available commercially called the SMP, but it's kind of popular. Uh, it could be a weight, heavily weighted nymph or something like that, but something panfish size. And, and that often works for me, and there are times when 
panfish and largemouth bass will not come to the surface. They'll be two feet down, and they will not come to the surface. And when they do that especially, I'll use that rig. And that's kind of a hopper-dropper rig because you've got the, the big, the large floating fly and then a small fly that's weighted, a subsurface fly behind it. And, uh, you know, there are days when they just won't come up, and I'll, I'll fish that rig and toss it out there and just, twitch the surface fly a little, let it sit, twitch it, let it sit, and then all of a sudden it goes backwards, and I set the hook on a fish. Mm -hmm. You, you drop, so, yeah. uh, drop her down about two feet is what you're normally doing? Or? Uh, I'm trying to guess. I kind of do it by instinct, but I would say about two feet. Yeah, I don't want it crazy long. It's, it's just a little bit, I don't know, a little hard to handle and kind of unnecessary, I think. But two feet seems yeah. to do it, I'd say. Yeah. Um, Jim in Cincinnati says, Hi, Skip. I just bought a full sinking line last summer for fishing a smaller reservoir for largemouth or channel cats. Any tips or tricks for doing so? Leaders, lines, weights? Thanks. So looks like he's just learning uh, about full sinking line. Yeah. Channel cats are interesting. I've, I've not caught very many of them. But I'm trying to remember, I, in, actually in that dropping snake canoe trip, I caught a, I believe it was a channel cat. Man, it fought its brains out. I was surprised. Um, <laughs> I always thought of a catfish as kind of an old boot, but uh, mm -hmm. that thing fought like a wild rainbow the same size, with, with the exception that it just never came close to jumping. But anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so that's a strong fish, and largemouth bass can put up a real good fight, too. Um, I don't, so I don't know much about channel cats. I just know that I've caught a very few of them. But what I can tell them about, it was largemouth, wasn't it, that he was talking about? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Wanting to know um, about using sinking lines with those largemouth. Yeah, I do that all the time, and a lot of the time, when largemouths aren't in the shallows, then you have to go deep if you want to find them. That's just where they go, and uh, sometimes they're just out around the outer edge of the weed line. Sometimes they're well out into the reservoir or lake, and then you have to find where they are, find the uh, kind of um, structure down there that they like, like a, a ridge or a, or a log that's sunken or something like that, or a boulder or a whatever, a patch of weeds. And you find that stuff by experimenting. Uh, fish finder, of course, is a great help because you can see what's down there. But in, in any case, uh, he was asking mostly about tackle. And I, with lines, with largemouth, I live in an area on the, in western Washington where we don't catch a lot of larger largemouth. Once in a while, somebody catches a real big one. But for the most part, they're uh, 8 to 12 inches, 13 13 is even mm -hmm. starting to be a big one. I go other places, and that's not that's not even the average size. But around here, I can get away with a six-weight line, no problem, uh, full sinking line or floating. But you start getting into bigger bass, and you're throwing bigger bugs, and you've got bass or largemouth bass are really dirty fighters. You've got to just – it's a tug-of-war more than anything. And so a heavy line suits a heavy rod, and you want that heavy rod to fight fish. So a lot of places, a seven weight is a good choice. Uh, if you really, if you live in Florida or someplace that has really big bass, you might want to go with an eight. Some people go even heavier, but I think, I think a seven is a good choice for a largemouth bass sinking line. Do you, um, with that sinking line, are your leaders uh, usually uh, just straight, uh, untapered, short? Some people do that. I, I have never been comfortable. Now, I don't – some awfully good fishermen use very short, untapered leaders with sinking lines for all of these species, for trout and bass, mm -hmm. and basses. 
I have never been able to bring myself to do that because it just seems like I'm insulting the fish. I've got my fly up close to my fly line, and the fly line's easy to see. And, and I, I know some really good fly fishers say, this works, don't worry about it. And I've seen it work. I've, I've done it. I, I remember catching a really nice big rainbow on a rig like that up in the Bow River in uh, Alberta. But uh, I just I can't live with that. So <laughs> so I usually use a short leader and a couple of feet of tippet. So maybe a six, seven foot leader, a couple of feet of tippet. And yeah, if you're going after largemouth bass, again, uh, I'd go pretty heavy on the tippet, on the leader and tippet. Yeah. One X yeah. something like that. Okay, a couple more here. Mike uh, Cleaver, clever in Minnesota. Um, he says, do you have more success fly fishing panfish with flies uh, designed to imitate natural insects or bright att attractor patterns? Well, that's pretty easy. Uh, with trout, so often you are fishing natural, imitative, or imitative flies, something that looks real. With uh, let's see, he was asking specifically about panfish, wasn't he? Panfish, yeah, yeah. Panfish. I mean, largemouth bass. I, I got to put a sidebar in here. Largemouth bass, um, a lot of the time, they just aren't feeding. Typically, about one. One-third of the time they're feeding or something like that. I can't remember the statistics. So a lot of the times when we catch largemouth bass, we have to taunt them or tease them or make them curious or something because they're not feeding, but they will hit. So there's no absolutely no sense in imitating something. Um, mm -hmm. Instead, you have these crazy-looking, you look at the crazy bass lures like spinnerbaits and things. They're just bizarro, and they work because they, they, uh, they, you know, they make them mad or something. Yeah, um, and yeah. fish, I, I don't find that's as true, but I will say on the whole, I rarely feel the need to imitate anything in order to catch a panfish. I've seen definitely bluegills, especially I've noticed, can get smart. I haven't seen it in crappies, um, but bluegills <laughs> they can be pretty darn hard to catch. Um, people catch them and release them, and, and they get fished for a lot. They can wise up. They're dumb around spawning time, but after spawning time's over, well, we're all dumb around spawning time, but once that's over, <laughs> they can get <laughs> I think it's a universal thing, but uh, yeah. they really get smart. And But then it's still not so much about imitation. It's it's about making a real good presentation and figuring out something that's going to fool them or get their curiosity up. I, I guess the simple answer is, after saying all that, is that I rarely worry about imitation when it comes to panfish. Just once in a while, if there's something really prevalent, like flying ants dropping in the water, I will fish a flying ant, because it just makes sense. But um, yeah. the warm water fish are, are so different from the, from trouts. Yeah, more opportunistic, trout, right? Than, than well, yes. Yes, but also no. I mean, they. Uh, I think the big difference between trout and and the warm water fish is that the warm water fish are are not so much selective as they 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 take each bit of food that comes to them on a case by case basis and they decide whether to reject it or take it and they can get really smart about it. I've run into that with smallmouth, largemouth, panfish, um, trout. It's so much of it's about imitation that when they go over to bass or panfish, they don't, they, they find they don't have to imitate things, and they think that these fish are dumb, and I just don't agree. Yeah, hmm. interesting, interesting take. Well, all that comes from a lot of experience, catching a lot of fish, and uh, that's how you learn. So uh, thanks for sharing all your, your knowledge with us tonight. Um, stick with me, Skip. We've we got to wind things up here. Um, it's near the end of 
90 minutes, and, uh, and you thought that was going to be a long time, didn't you? Comes <laughs> by quick, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I got so, so much to say, but maybe it's not worth hearing, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, we hardly made a dent in your book, uh, so uh, people have a lot to look forward to uh, by, by going out and getting that. But uh, we're going to give away um, a membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Dying Journal and a copy of your latest book, um, 365 Fly Fishing Tips for Trout bass and panfish so stick with us um and uh i'm going to need you to help me uh, verify i get the right answer to the question i asked so uh hang tight and we'll be uh giving away those prizes in just a, a few seconds here i'll stay right here reeling and all right reeling and healing midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreat for women surviving and battling all types of cancer their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, nature, and support network, which in turn renews the, the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout waders, flies, um, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org. That's fishon.org or call them at 616-855-4017. That's 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and leave us to give us your feedback about the show. You'll find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave us your comments. We'd really appreciate it. And now it's time to give away our prizes. So the winners of our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't uh, register for tonight, it's too late now, but uh, make sure you do it for next time uh, and you'll have a chance to win uh, one of these great prizes. If you have a lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show uh, to ask you for information so that we can uh, get your prizes uh, out to you. Um, so with that said, uh, let's give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. Uh, to learn more about the FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. It's a great organization to support, and, um, and you can get actively involved or just support them by donations and a membership. So check them out. I think you'll enjoy the company there as well. So our, let's see, database, okay, uh, ready to go. And let's see here. It's, our winner is going to be Eric. I think he pronounces Hire, if I remember from a previous show. So Eric, uh, Eric Hire uh, in Missouri, um, you just got yourself a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. So congratulations on that, and uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. And now we'll give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, courtesy of Amato Books. And to find out all the publications and books that Amato has, go to amatobooks.com and you can check them out there. So... Um, our winner for that is John Norcus, John Norcus in Georgia. So I bet you there's some good bass fishing down in Georgia. I know there's some good trout fishing down in Georgia, too. Uh, but, uh, John, uh, congratulations on that. I hope you enjoy the uh, subscription of Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and uh, always a lot to learn from that publication. So that's good. We've got that done. Now uh, let's give away your book, Skip. Um, 365 fly fishing tips for trout, bass, and panfish. And if you don't win tonight, we do have a link on the home page. If it's not showing on your version after the show, just refresh the page. 
you'll see uh, Skip's book there. You can click on it, order it from Amazon. But this is uh, courtesy of Stackpole Books is allowing us to give away Skip's book tonight. And again, go to stackpolebooks.com. They are one of the major publishers of fly fishing books, um, and so they've got a lot to offer. And uh, so we're going to give away a copy of uh, Skip's book. And the question you need to answer is, um, oh, most of the flies in Skip's book are other people's flies, but we talked about one of his flies that he uses for dragonfly nymphs. What's the name of Skip's fly? What's the name of Skip's fly? So uh, you have to enter your submission on the home page of our uh, website, askaboutflyfishing.com. And we'll see Skip now. I'm, uh, it is a little delay in before they hear us, number one, uh, with the broadcast. And then we have to wait for them to type. Uh, and uh, we'll take us a minute or so to get some responses. So let's see uh, what we get uh, coming through here. Um, and uh, I haven't got anything yet. Do I tell you which, what it is? Do I get the book? No, don't do that. <laughs> I've had that happen twice in, uh, in oh, really? uh, some 300 shows where my guest answers my question. I said, I know you know it. <laughs> I'm trying to find out if anybody else knows it. I, uh, I okay. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we, uh, we just got one in uh, from um, Wayne and Kamloops, B.C., uh, Wayne, the only trouble is I might not be able to get you a copy of the book up there. Um, I will talk to you after the show uh, to do that. The reason is, guys, in Canada is U.S. Postal Service charges about 50 bucks to get a book up there. So um, the publishers aren't willing to send one up there at that rate. Uh, yeah, I mean, it costs more, more to mail it than it does for the book, you know, so... Uh, well, we can um, we can maybe work something else out for you, Wayne. Uh, but uh, I'll I'll communicate with you by email to do that. Um, so um, let's see if um, uh, oh well, Phil, you just got yourself another book, buddy. Um, you came in after uh, Wayne did, but uh, since I can't send him the book. Uh, We'll get one sent to you. And uh, he's got Sparkle Furry Dragon from Solitude, copies of Dragonfly Nymph. That's it. Um, so, uh, Phil, you, you're getting quite the library over there, I must say. Uh, but he's quick on the fingers, and uh, uh, Phil's a university professor, math math uh, professor, I believe. Uh, so he must be pretty sharp, because math certainly isn't my <laughs> bag of tricks. <laughs> but... Um, but anyway, congrats, Phil. Uh, you know the routine, and we'll get uh, books sent out to you. Uh, Skip, hey, thank you so much for uh, being with us uh, again. It's a pleasure to, to talk with you and uh, for you to share your knowledge. It was loads of fun for me. I hope it was for you. Thank you, Roger, and thank everybody else. Yeah, great. Yep. Uh, thanks, audience, for sending in the questions. We always appreciate that. And uh, if you haven't found out about the archive on our website, please uh, check it out. Uh, you can see it. Uh, podcast archive on the top of the, the website page there, and you can drill down and, and look for shows on just about anything you can think of. Just type in a keyword search like you would in Google, 
and you're going to come up with a list of shows to, to check out. So over 300 shows now, over 200 guests uh, we've interviewed. So it's quite the quite the library of wow. useful information. Yeah. Well, you shoot so, um, five. That was my number. What? 365. Yeah, I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> By the time I catch up, you'll probably have the uh, you know the uh, I don't know double that whatever a century's <laughs> worth of tips. You know. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, yeah, well, thanks, everybody. And uh, our next broadcast is going to be on January 8th on uh, the new year, 2020. And um, it's going to be at 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And that show I'm going to interview Richard Platsky. And uh, our show is going to uh, be called Mighty Mouse. Uh, Richard has been working diligently on dialing in his mousing game. So uh, Trout love him, Bass love him, <laughs> right, uh, Skip? And uh so what does yeah. it take to get the fish to attack that mouse? Well, we'll talk about that. Uh, is it the fly pattern, the presentation, or a combination of both? Uh, listen in to hear what Richard has to say about what he's learned in fishing with, uh, with the mouse. So, And we'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, and uh, for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements. So you don't miss out on any future podcast. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well,